So we're going to jump into something this morning, and once we get started, I've got a lot of scripture this morning, but uh, once we get started, I want to go back to Genesis 3, which is pretty much the, one of the, the most essential stories in all of scripture. It's, it's when human beings get started, and the decisions that they make, and the deception that comes in. And, and so I want to get into that. Uh, we've been talking the last few weeks Basically, I've been doing a series without it being a series on spiritual warfare. If you remember last week, we talked about standing guard. And Paul was addressing the elders at Ephesus, basically saying, look, boys, there are going to be savage wolves who come in among you, and they are going to distort the truth. And he said, don't forget that I warned you for three years with weeping and tears. And so what Paul looked at as one of the greatest dangers to Christians was not even persecution. He knew persecution was going to come, but he saw that a distortion of the truth would creep into the church and cause probably the most damage by far. And he saw that coming in and he was right. And so you see that warning over and over again. Now this, this morning I want to kind of follow suit with that and I want to speak a message entitled The Truth About Lies. But before we begin, can we just, can we just pray together real quick this morning? Father, we thank you so much for your word. And Lord, just like, just like Kaylee said, God, I pray that by your spirit and by your word this morning... Lord, that you would expose every lie that we have believed, God, so that people could be set free from anxiety and depression and fear. And Lord, we could be set free from the lies that we believe, God, that are causing us, Lord, to, to take a path of destruction, Lord. And, and, and Father, I pray that your truth would just begin to saturate our souls, that you would bring us into a place of that truth because it is the truth that sets us free. So we open our hearts, we open our minds to your word this morning, God, and we believe that you will transform us by it in Jesus name. Amen. So now you know I don't I don't know if you're aware of this or not but we have always lived in a war of a battle between truth and lies. And I it may just be me, but I feel like growing up I was never really fully aware of how intense this battle was. And I feel like just over the past two years, it has become so blatant, the lies. And, and it's, you hear people saying all the time, you just don't know what the truth is anymore. It's hard to know who to believe about all of these issues and these things. And the truth is, is that we are right in the middle of a war that has started since the beginning of time in the Garden of Eden. And it is a war between truth and lies. I remember whenever I first uh, went to college, and I was about 18 years old. When you're 18 years old, you know, anybody, anything any smart person tells you, you just makes you, make you, you feel like you're smarter. You're like, oh, man, I've got the truth now. And I remember going to college and, 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 and studying these things, and, and I was learning about postmodernism. I don't know what y'all study in college now. Like, I don't know what even kids get into nowadays. But it, I went in 2005, y'all, and I know we got a lot of college students, but in 2005, they were then teaching some pretty crazy things even back then. Amen. And I was reading books by Descartes and Nietzsche and Michael Foucault and Jacques Derrida. I mean, I, I feel smart just saying the names. You know what I'm talking about? And I was reading books by all these guys. And for me, i got to be honest with you, they actually helped lead me to the Lord, not because they were Christian at all. They're the farthest thing from Christian. They are deniers of God. They are teachers of postmodernism. And so, but the truth of the matter is, is I had, I had these, I was in a search for truth and I had these professors who deemed, who thought they were brilliant. And the more they taught me, the more I came to a place of despair where I said, everything they're teaching me is meaningless. If everything they're teaching me is true, then everything is meaningless and there is no truth. 
And I didn't realize it at the time, but the one mantra of postmodernism is there is no capital T truth. And this is what is being taught at a broad level right now. And this is the very reason why in our society, things like gender and marriage and sexuality are all being redefined because in the 1960s, these two French philosophers decided it would be a good idea to inject an idea in American culture. And now you start to see the fallout of that. Why we believe what we believe. Why do we believe what we believe? We are formed by media. We are formed by culture. People believe political stuff just because they spend so much time watching the news nowadays. And we get inundated with these ideas. And there's one way to counteract that, and I want to get into that. But listen, let me tell you all something right now. If you don't have a Bible, you need to get one. Amen. That's like the most simple pastoral truth I can give you. And if you have a Bible, you need to open that thing and read it regularly. Amen. And the reason you need to do that is because you are not going to be able to withstand the barrage of lies that are coming against us in our culture and in our society today. There was a woman, she worked at the Washington Post, and I know we probably got a lot of Trump sympathizers and maybe even lovers in here. So just bear with me. I'm not hating on anybody. I'm telling you what she said. Okay. But she was a, she wrote a book and she worked at the Washington post and she wrote a book called the death of truth. And in this book, the death of truth, uh, the, the subtitle is notes on falsehoods in the Trump age. And she basically spends a big time building up these, uh, these arguments about the, 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 the lies that we're all believing and that when, when lies take root in the White House and from the top down in our society, it begins to cause truth decay where nobody believes any truths everymore. Anything anybody believes are all lies. And she said that even Donald Trump, he averaged 5.9 lies a day while he was in office. And I don't know how she got that number, but that was funny. Y'all didn't laugh. You're like, hey, Trump, 2024. Anyway, I'd like to get the other numbers on everybody else in office as well. That's not the point. The point is, is that she opens up in this book, and of course, she's biased, so she's hating on the right. But she, in her book, which is so interesting, in her book, she actually gets to the point where she says, you know what, the fact is, truth decay did not start with the political right. It didn't start with Donald Trump. And I'm like, duh. It actually started back in Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden. We went far before then, but she ends up saying it didn't start with him. It actually started with the left in the 1960s, she said, when Foucault and Derrida injected postmodernism into our society when they said there is no truth. All truth is relative. You can decide for yourself what is truth. And if you actually look at this, and really all, all types of truth and, and distortion of the truth, at the end of the day is because people love darkness and they love their sins and they don't want to come into the truth because they want to hold on to their sin in their life. This one dude, his name is uh, Foucault. If you read into his stuff, the one thing, the reason he was trying to tell everybody, hey, there is no absolute truth. You know why? Because he writes that he was a disciple of a man who, who was the, basically the birthplace of sadism. He was a sexual pervert. He argued for as much sexual freedom as you could possibly have in your life. And therefore, in order to do that, there had to be no truth. Amen. And so he injected this into our society, and that is why we see the ideas and the arguments running rampant that we see in our world. But see, deception is what is at work in our world today. And here's the thing about lies. If you realized they were lies, you would not believe them. 
If you realized they were lies, you wouldn't believe them. You would say, that's a lie. I'm not going to believe that. But every single one of us, whether we are in bondage to sin, whether we're dealing with anxiety and depression, whether we're operating under a spirit of fear, at some point in our lives, we have believed a lie that is taken captive. We've, we've been taken captive by it. And that is why we find ourselves in the bondage that we find ourselves in. Is because at the end of the day, it all is rooted back to a lie. All temptation to sin is the temptation to believe a lie or an an illusion about reality. And Jesus makes it very clear that the person behind all deception throughout Scripture and in our world is a dude named the devil, right? That we call the devil. And even in today's world, that it's not popular to say that this even exists. There are people today that say, hey, evil, the devil is a metaphor for evil. No, Jesus didn't believe that the devil was a metaphor for evil. Jesus believed that the devil was a created being who fell in rebellion against God and is now the most powerful being in the world. He's the most influential, most powerful being in the world. Matter of fact, in the book of John, Jesus called him the archon, the chief ruler of this world three times. He needed to establish the fact that if you want to know why the world is the way that it is, it's because the chief ruler of this world is operating and he's operating through one particular means and weapon. He's operating through lies. Satan does not believe, bring guns against people. Satan does not just flat out try to kill people even though that's his end goal. His one weapon that he uses is deception and lies. Matter of fact, here's Satan's primary strategy. I wrote this down. Deceptive ideas that play to our disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. In other words, the three things that you're fighting is Satan's lies who appeals to your flesh through the system of this world. Deceptive ideas that appeal to your disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. Everybody else is doing it. Amen. And these deceptive ideas begin to come into our heart. And that's the tricky thing. The one thing that he brings is lies into our life. And that is how he begins to get us in a place where we are in bondage. A guy named Dallas Willard said, Ideas are the primary stronghold of evil in the human self and in society. You can look at the history of every society of every nation throughout history and the downfall of every nation. If you remember Germany, it's just easy to talk about Germany because they killed 10 million Jews and all that back in the day. But the idea was is that they were the apex of human society in arts, in media, in education, in every sphere and realm of society. But an idea was injected there where they decided that there was an idea about race, that they needed to purify the race. And when they did, it led to the killing of 10 million Jews and ultimately their collapse of Germany itself. An idea brings a nation to the ground. Amen. You say, well, this is crazy, Clay. We're just, I want to talk about personal stuff. I mean, I got my own lies to deal with. I get that. You got your own lies to deal with. Satan comes at you personally, tries to get you to feel unworthy, unloved, all that. Those are things that we must deal with. But you need to understand that this is not just a personal attack, but he is attacking our entire society. And you must know what you believe. Otherwise, you are going to fall up under prey because here's the thing. You spend very little time in your Bible. You listen to me about an hour a week, and then you listen to media about five hours a day. And you got to ask yourself, what am I going to believe at the end of the day? What is going to shape me? What is going to conform me? This is why when Jesus shows up on the scene, he says two statements. He says what? Repent and believe. Repent is the word metanoia, which literally just means you need to rethink reality. 
Repent does mean, yeah, you're turning for sin. But sin is not just bad actions. Sin is a way that you think. It's a way that you see the world. It's missing the mark. It's looking at reality as being different than what it actually is. He says you need to rethink reality and you need to believe. In other words, you need to trust in Jesus' vision of the kingdom, His mental map of reality. See, it's not just enough to say, well, I believe in Jesus. He came and He died. That's not enough. You need to embrace His vision for the world. You need to embrace his mental map of reality. One guy said, well, I, I'm a believer in Jesus, but I don't believe in the devil. If you don't believe in the devil, you don't believe in Jesus because Jesus believed in the devil, friends. I can't just say I believe in Jesus when I don't believe Scripture. Many Christians today are saying, you know what, we believe in Jesus, but we're not going to follow the Bible. If you ain't going to follow the Bible, you ain't going to follow Jesus. And see, this is something that we have to distinguish up front and make clear up front. Because when you begin to erode the Scripture, the Holy Word of God, then you're not going to have a foundation and a basis for truth and who Jesus truly is anymore. You will make up your own Jesus. You will distort the truth. You will believe a lie. And it is happening at a greater rate than ever right now, not just in the world, in the church. And this is why we're taking a few sermons, a few messages just to deal with this issue. But see, when Jesus called apprentices, He did not call for men to take up arms and get as many guns as He possibly could, did He? He equipped men and women with the Word of God. And He said, I'm calling apprentices not to take up guns and weapons and swords and go to war. I'm calling men and women to get truth rooted in their heart and to be truth-sayers in the midst of a world who has believed the lies of the enemy. The weapon we use is the truth of God's Word. And this is why in John 1.14 it says that when Jesus came, He was full of what? Grace and truth. In John 3.21, Jesus said, Hey, whoever does evil, he hates the light, and he will not come to the light because he's afraid that his deeds will be exposed. But He said, Whoever lives by truth, they come into the light. John 8, 31, 32, Jesus said, if you continue in my word, this is why you need a Bible. You need to read it. You need to practice it. You need to hang on to it. It needs to become the most important book in your life. He says, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth and I am the life. See, truth is not just a set of facts or an encyclopedia. Truth is a person. Truth is Jesus Christ. And in John 18, 36 through 38, he's before Pontius Pilate, before he's going to be crucified. And I love this conversation. Jesus answered to him and said, look, basically, if you're a king, why aren't your boys fighting for you? And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You said rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. I love that. I find no fault in him at all because this man was perfect. He was the embodiment of truth standing right in his midst. And when Pilate asked the question, what is truth? He was looking truth in the eyes. 
But see, everybody is asking that question. What is truth? How do I, how do I live my life? What, what, what is the meaning of life? What, is there a God? And uh, what are all these other religions? And people are dealing with this truth. And most of our lives, really what we're trying to do is we're just trying to navigate. What does it mean? Who is God? What's, what's He like? And what, what is democracy? What does it mean to be happy? What about sexuality? What do we do with that? How are we supposed to raise our kids? And we've got all these ideas running rampant in our minds. And the lies we believe or the truth we believe shape and decide how we're going to live, whether we're going to go down a destructive path or a life that is full of love and flourishing. It's about the lies or the truth that we believe. And when we believe the truth, it brings us into freedom and it brings us into flourishing. But the devil's aim is to inject ideas into culture, into education, into every realm of society so that he can train up a new generation that says in the postmodern mantra, hey, there is really no God, there is really no truth. You live your truth and don't push your business up in mine. I'm going to do me, you do you. But see, that is, that is the opposite of what human beings are designed to do. We have a truth. His name is Jesus. We have a God and we are called to submit our lives to him in the glory and honor of his name. When Jesus was addressing religious leaders of his day, I love what he says. You know, Jesus was so kind. John 8, 44 and 45. He said, you belong to your father, the devil. I love that. I'd like to say that to somebody one time. <laughs> and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. What was he doing? Not holding to the truth. For there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. And like I said, Jesus is telling the truth. And he tells these religious leaders, you know what? You, you say that you are the father of Abraham, but I, or, or you're the children of Abraham. But I'm telling you, you are the children of the devil. Because you've not believed the truth. I'm sitting here telling you the truth. I am the truth. And you will not believe me. And so if we talk about how Jesus viewed the world, what was his mental map? How did he see the world? Right? Let me give you about four points. For Jesus, what you got to understand if you read the book of John, the devil is real. And he's also the most powerful and influential creature in the world. Now, I need you to understand that right now, if you go to college, right, they're going to teach you, a lot of smart professors are going to teach you that, hey, you know what, Jesus, we get that back then that's what people believed, but we've actually advanced in medical science and we've progressed. And, and now those things, we're, we're beyond that. We're in a post-scientific age and we believe better and we know better than that. We know that really the devil is just sort of a metaphor for, for good and evil, but really there's no good and evil either because you just kind of do what you want to do. Now, we don't get to live like, let me tell you something. I have come to the conclusion based on living my own way and then living according to Scripture that Jesus' way is far, much, far better. You need to try it out and test it for a minute. Live your own way and see how that gets you down the road. And you say all the time, well, I know better than Jesus. You do not know better than Jesus. He is the only human being who has walked on this earth that has a full grip on reality. Everybody else's reality is skewed. So when I come to Scripture, there may be things that I come and I don't really agree with. But here's the, here's the thing. I don't get to have an opinion when it comes to God's Word. His Word shapes me. Preachers nowadays, I saw where somebody wrote yesterday, that real preachers preach the truth of God's Word in order to change culture. But so many of the phony preachers of our days are now watering down the Word and changing the Word to please the culture. And here's the thing. 
Charles Spurgeon said it like this. He said, either let them be offended or let them be won. The Word of God may offend you, but if it, if it offends you in such a way that you say, you know what, this may be right, I need to repent, I need to turn to it, then it has done its work. The gospel, the truth of God's word may be offensive to you. It may call out things in your life that you don't want to hear called out. But it is good for you because it's bringing you into truth and it's bringing you into a place of freedom. If you remain in that lie, you are under the deception that somehow you are happy. And I promise you, you are not going into a place of human flourishing. And our society is telling it at large. We're not doing that well. Things aren't. All hunky-dory. We're not moving into a utopian state. We're moving further and further away from God. But for Jesus, number two, the devil's end goal is absolute destruction of our souls and of society. And number three, the devil's primary stratagem for this destruction is simply this, lies. Number four, Jesus sees our fight against the devil primarily as a fight to believe truth over lies. See, I need you to understand, like most of the time when we think about the devil, we think about some kind of horror movie or somebody foaming out the mouth or walking down steps backwards, upside down and spitting up green stuff. And let me tell you something. I don't downplay the fact that there is demonization. I've seen it alive and I get that it happens. It's real. I don't deny that. But you need to understand that the devil plays the greatest deception in our world by convincing people that he's really not that real in the first place. And he just subtly brings lies into your mind and into your heart and you believe them and he destroys your life from the inside out and you're not even aware that he's planted the seed. He would rather just hide out. Nobody ever be openly demonized or anything out and just to get the world to believe as many lies as subtly as he can, as much as he possibly can. But see, Jesus ties the devil's primary strategy as the father of lies back to the Garden of Eden. This is why he is the father of lies. Now I'm going to read several scriptures here. But in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, for, for, for millennia, people have said, even people who are not Christians have said, this is the most accurate diagnosis of the human condition of any other story that is to, to be offered. In Genesis 3, 1, it says, Now the serpent, or Satan, was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, notice the first thing out of Satan's mouth, did God really say? It's always a question about Scripture. What did God really say? Did He really say that? Is that what He meant by that? Are you sure about that? Because we can probably find ways around that and we can justify that and we can find some kind of college scholar or professor that has been to seminary for a long time and he can take that and I'm not sure that God really said that. I mean, what does it say in the Greek? You know what I'm talking about? Because we can find a different thing for it to say. Did God really say, and it's attack on God's word. He said that you must not eat from any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden. Now I want you to notice what Eve does here. Because if you read in Genesis 2, God didn't say you may eat from the trees of the garden. He said you may freely eat from all of the trees in the garden. One subtle doubt, one subtle lie gets her to omit what God said. Just a little section of it, just a little chunk of it. That he may freely eat from all the trees in the garden. Because right here she's attacking his generosity. She's beginning to doubt already just by him saying, did God really say whether or not God is actually generous, whether or not God is actually good. And she omits the word freely in that one moment. She said, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And then she adds something that God didn't say. She adds, and you must not touch it. 
Why would you add that? Why would you add to what God says? Because that subtle doubt has already got into her mind and she is now amping up the strictness, the nature of God, as if He's more harsh than He actually is. She's beginning to believe lies about the nature and character of God simply by an idea suggested to her by the serpent. So she omits that, and then she says, or you will die. Once again, she omits something else that God said because He didn't just say you will die. He said, in the emphatic sense, you will certainly die. So she is downplaying His generosity, She is increasing his strictness and his harshness as if he's a harsh God. And then lastly, she's downplaying the consequences of what will happen if she does eat of it. Is this not what we do when we believe our lives? Bad things happen in the world. devil says, you know what? If God was good, this wouldn't happen to you. And we omit that he's generous and that he's good. Then all of a sudden we go to church and we hear a preacher like me say that, hey, you can't do anything that you want to do and live for Christ. See, God's strict. He hates us. I mean, that's what the world does. And then finally, we say, well, you know what? In the end, everybody, God loves everybody, so there's going to be no judgment. And we omit the fact that there is going to be a judgment and that every single one of us we will be held accountable for what we do in our body, whether they are good or whether they are evil. And so when he comes, notice that he doesn't come with a stick or a sword. He, he could have just come in there and bit her, you know, straight out, I guess, and just said, you know what? I'm going to bleed her out right here in the garden. Just let her die. We'll start over. But he says, no, I think I'll do more damage if I can inject a lie into her mind. I think I'll do more damage if I can bring an idea that'll cause her to get to see, view God differently, cause her to get to view herself differently, and ultimately change the world around her. The fall of humanity begins with the Word of God. Did God really say this? You need to understand that because that is what's happening on every level of our lives. Even in your own life, there are things going on in your life right now. And sometimes the word of God will push up against things that are going on. And I've even had people when I counsel them, when they're trying to hold on to things, they will look for verses to justify their actions. We look for that. Did God really say it? What about this right here, though? I read in the Bible where it said, and they just take something totally out of context. And they begin to question, did God really say? Now notice. Verse 6, it said, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. You know what? My woman fixed something. I'm going to eat this thing. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some from the fruit of the tree and I ate it. Now he's done a double blame shift. And that's, what, that's, that's really the issue with most relationships is that we, are, we have a hard time taking accountability for our actions, don't we? I mean, anytime Andrea jumps on me for anything, I, I basically scapegoat her. You know what? If I do something bad, it's Andrea's fault. I mean, she should have had that covered. And I, like, that's what we do. We hate accountability. And so we double blame shift every time something happens. So what Adam does, he says, you know what? I ate it, but here's the thing. It was the woman who gave it to me. And not only that, God, you gave me the woman. If you hadn't gave me the woman, I wouldn't be in this position. 
It's never our fault, is it? It's always somebody else's fault. We play the victim, and then when we sense the guilt from the things that we have done, what we actually do is we hide ourselves from the presence of God. We enter into isolation. This is why it's so difficult to stay in community in the church when we are struggling with sin and addiction. Anybody ever been there? And you know what? There's so many people that go to church and they say, you know what? I go in there and I just people are just judging me. And you know what? Maybe they are in some churches. Maybe they I don't know. Maybe in some churches they just look at you like this when you come in. I don't know how all that works. But I would bet that the majority of most people who say people are just judging me are actually dealing with their own guilt in their conscience. You think people are judging you. You think people are looking at you, but actually you're just hiding from the presence of God because you've got guilt in your conscience. And the good news is, is that Jesus Christ died and shed his blood to take away that guilt from your conscience. He died and bled so that you could be washed clean from your sin and find forgiveness. This is the good news of the gospel, is that this is the condition of all of us. All of us have believed lies. All of us have entered into sin. All of us have hid from the presence of the Lord. And we didn't go looking for God. God shed shows up in the middle of the garden saying, where are you? I'm looking for you. God is looking for you. He said, no, who told you you were naked? You are designed for relationship with me. Come out from the darkness. Come out from the hiding. No matter what you've done, I can cover you with something far better than fig leaves. I can cover you with the blood of a lamb. I can cover you with the blood of Jesus. And he's saying, you need to come out. Quit blaming people. Quit saying, well, this is the reason I'm in there. Quit dealing. Come to the cross and he'll deal with your guilt and with your shame. In verse 13, it says, Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. See, this is, this is a harsh reality. Because, and this is why I'm telling you, read your Bibles. Because ignorance will not be justification in the end. Ignorance will not be something that you can plead. God, I just didn't know. Ignorance is still plenty for the devil to work with. And to get you to make decisions that will impact generations, impact your life. She didn't know him, but she was deceived. And we could get into all kinds of stuff right here. Where was the man at taking care of business right in this situation? But he drew her away and he deceived her. So verse 14 and 15, it says, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed to you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now this is the first prophecy about the coming of Christ the Messiah. And he says, look, the Satan is going, is going to have offspring. And some people are crazy enough to say, well, you know what? Say Satan had sex with Eve and they had kids. No, that's not what it means, friends. It means that the offspring of Satan are those who embrace his lies and live by them. And he said that there would be enmity between those who embrace lies and the, and the ones who receive the truth. Now, the seed of the woman was ultimately going to be Christ. And he said, you're going to strike his heel, but he will crush your head. And at the cross, Jesus Christ crushed the head of the serpent. He crushed the head of the serpent. But when Jesus deals with the religious leaders of his day, he refers back to Genesis 3 because they knew Genesis 3. And he said, you know what? You know when it talked about how God said that Satan was going to have offspring? You are his offspring. And the reason you're all his offspring is because you have embraced lies when I'm standing in your truth, in your midst, speaking to you the truth. He said, whoever hears the truth, does the truth, hears my voice. 
And so what is truth? That's the question that Pilate asked. You ever ask that question? What is truth? And I remember whenever I went to college, like I, don't, like I said, I don't know what y'all study. I got into crazy stuff. Like I talked to other people and they're like, I didn't learn none of that in college. I'm like, what did I take? <laughs> like what was we even in over there? I'm over here, though. I got, I'm the dude who got more hours than you're supposed to get. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, I'm going to take a little detour. I'm going to take 15 hours over here that really don't go with what I'm learning, but it's going to be interesting. I'm that kind of guy. I'm weird. They're like, oh, Lee. Wouldn't do that for loving their money. Anyway, if you study philosophy, there are three great questions in life. Number one, who is God? This is theology. Is there a God? And if there is, who is He? What's He do? What's He like? Number two, who am I? That's anthropology. That's the study of human beings. What does it mean to be human? And number three, how do we live or what is the good life? Right? This is morality. Those are the three main philosophical questions throughout millennia. Who is God? Who am I? What does it mean to be human? And ultimately, how do we live the good life? What does it mean to live the good life? Is it about the pursuit of happiness or is it something, something different than that? And see, the devil comes at Eve in all three of these categories because he is trying to give her a new philosophy of life. And when he answers the question, who is God, he does it very quickly, very subtly with just a thought. In verse 5, he says, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. Translation, he's saying God isn't who he claims to be. God is a deceiver. God is a liar, and God is hiding something from you. God is not nearly as generous as He puts on. God knows that if you actually do what He's saying don't do, you're going to find happiness. You're going to find peace, and He's holding out on you, and your eyes are going to be open. So this is a distortion of God, that He's not generous, that He doesn't have good intentions, that He's petty, that He's jealous, and that He's holding out on you. And then He answers the second question, Who are you? Who am I? Verse 5 he says, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So God's not who He says He is. He's hiding something from you. And secondly, if you don't do what He says, you will actually be like God and you can then decide for yourself what is good and evil. And I'm telling you right now, the postmodern thought that everybody thinks they're so smart for believing is exactly what Satan sold them back in Genesis 3. You can be your own God. You can decide for yourself what is good and what is evil. You can determine what is truth. You can live your own truth. Somebody said, well, Clay, that Jesus thing may be truth for you, but it ain't truth for everybody. No, at the end of the age, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And they will look truth in the eye and everyone will be held accountable for what they did with this man named Jesus Christ and how they responded to the truth of His Word. I'm not saying it's easy. I went through it just like everybody else where I resisted the truth for a year reading the Word of God. And even now, there are places in my heart where i got to be honest with you, Satan still tries to plant lies about who I am and about who God is. And we're always wrestling with that, but we go back to the Word. We pull the sword. We cut off the lies and we stand firm in the truth truth of God's Word, and we hold that belt of truth in the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and we say, well, now we're going to stand firm in this. We're going to do battle until the Lord comes back. We're going to fight this thing. And so lastly, he says, okay, who are you? And then he answers the question, how do we live? What is the good life? In verse 6, notice what he appeals to. He said, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. 
When Satan comes to you with a temptation, can I tell you, he doesn't come with something that's just blatantly open. Like if it was ugly and distorted and looked demonic, you'd probably say, I don't want none of that. When he comes, it looks good. It looks shiny. It is pleasing to the flesh. It's desirable to the eyes. This will make me smarter. This will make people think that I'm smarter. I will be viewed as intelligent. It's going to be pleasing to my belly. Like, I mean, and all of these things come into our mind. And in that moment, we want what feels good right now in this moment. And we take the bite, we receive the lie. And ultimately, it takes us further down into deception and further down into, into bondage. See, secular society, basically, and this is why back in whenever it was the 50s or the 60s, right, we, we decided, hey, it's a good idea. You know what we should do? Separation of church and state. We should take prayer out of schools. That was a long time ago, y'all. They did that 60 years ago. We've been on a downhill climb ever since then because we're trying to teach our children that God is not that important. He shouldn't be involved in every aspect of life. You can go to church on Sunday and deal with God there, but don't bring him into the other aspects of your life. Leave him stuck somewhere in a corner there because at the end of the day, he's really not that important. That is what secular society is trying to do. They answer the philosophical question, who is God, by saying, you know what? There probably isn't a God. And even if there is a God, it's of no consequence. It doesn't matter. And that is a bad place to be in because then you answer the second question, what does it mean to be human? And basically what it means to be human is you are your own God. You do whatever the heck you want whenever you want to do it. And then if you answer the third question, what is the good life? Whatever you feel like doing, whenever you feel like doing it. And that's how it plays out. Do y'all not see that this lie has been going on for years and millennia and millennia and it still works as good today as it worked back in Genesis 3? Somebody said, well, this is postmodernism. This is humanism. No, this is what the dude said back in Genesis 3 when he crept into the garden. It's always been there. It's just you got a bunch of smart dudes who made it sound a lot smarter. Amen. And so he creeps in and he brings all this in. But see, we believe now that, you know what, God's just a myth from the pre-modern, pre-scientific age. This is what's going on in our world. And this is why you see the craziness and the insanity that is actually in the news media on a daily basis. I mean, last year we lived in a year where they gave away awards for the woman of the year to men. And I probably shouldn't have got that loud because I shouldn't be outraged by it. But the point of the matter is, how, how do you get to that place? How do you get to the place where women of the year are men? Do you not see that that is a blatant distortion of truth? And, he's, and, we, and here's, the, here's the danger, though. Because like I said last week, it's not our job as Christians to get angry at that. It's not our job as Christians to be angry at the people that believe it. It's our job to continue to proclaim the truth so that people can turn from those lies, come to the knowledge of the truth, and receive salvation in Christ. The danger is this, though, that we don't hold to the truth any longer, and we suddenly allow these lies to get embedded into our heart to where we begin to sympathize with these lies. And we can argue, well, we're Christians. We don't receive it outright. We don't teach that stuff. But deep down, you don't resist it. You're embracing it slowly but surely. And that's why the Word of God is so essential and so important in our age. But see, they shut out the fact that there's even a Creator. And here's what I need you to understand. These things break down because if there is a Creator, if you could put that slide up, if there is a Creator, 
And this is why they don't want there to be creator. They just want there to be evolutionary theory and we're all just here by time and chance and you're just a highly evolved animal that just so happened to be at the top of the food chain in this time and place. Can I tell you that there is a creator? And if there is a creator, there is design. That means that he created you with intent that your sexuality was formed a specific way, that your body was formed with intent, that, that your mind was formed with intent, that you were set here to image forth God and to bring glory to God, and that there's intent about how you were designed. And if there's intent, then there is morality. That means that there is good and evil. There is right and wrong. There is pain and there is flourishing. There's suffering and there's goodness. All of those things. And if there is morality, then guess what? There is accountability. But human beings hate accountability. When we think, I, I think I saw somebody this morning, I was scrolling through Facebook just for fun for a minute, and I saw a young lady that was talking about how she had been thinking about hell and about judgment, and people had responded to her and told her about returning from sin, putting faith in Christ, just ministering to her right there because she was thinking about hell and it was scaring her to death. But see, we want to shut this idea of any final judgment, any idea of hell, any reality of future accountability before God out of the way because we don't want to have to deal with that. And if we remove accountability, then we remove morality. You can do whatever you want to do because nobody's going to be judged. And if we remove morality, we remove intent and design. And then finally, we just say, you know what? There is no God. We'll be God for ourselves. But why? Why does he use lies? And I'll tell you why. Because spirit and truth is how we are transformed into the image of Jesus. Spirit and truth is how we are transformed into the image of Jesus. God's, look, let me tell you something about salvation. God's end goal is not just that you'll go to heaven when you die. Do you realize that's not what salvation is all about? Salvation is far deeper than that. God's end goal is that by the Holy Spirit you will be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ and that you will transform the world around you because God will live His life through you in Christ by the Holy Spirit. He wants to make you look like Jesus, not just struggle through life and then when you die you go to heaven. Matter of fact, when Jesus returns, He's coming back to rule and reign on this earth renovated. You and I aren't going to be floating around on clouds forever. So when He comes back, He's going to set that up. But right now, in this moment, spirit and truth is how we are transformed into the image of Jesus. And by spirit, we mean God's empowering presence. And by truth, we mean reality. And we mean His Word. And you've got to have both of those things. Because here's the thing. If you have spirit without truth, there's really no meaning, is there? Imagine sitting in a room with somebody... And he's there, but he's just not saying anything. And you don't even really know him. It's just kind of awkward, isn't it? You're just like, oh, this is kind of weird. I mean, he's here, but he's not saying anything, so I don't know what to take. So if you have spirit without truth, you have no meaning. But if you have truth without spirit, it's impersonal. You don't know what to believe. You, 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 don't, feel, you don't feel the transformation. So when Jesus shows up, he shows up as both human and teacher, spirit and truth. So he could be a living reality, a presence in your life to lead you into the right truth at the right time because God wants a relationship and he's given you a Holy Spirit where he can be with you and lead you into the right truth at the right time. You need both spirit and truth to be transformed. And so secondly, what you have is isolation and lies, if spirit and truth is how we're transformed into the image of Jesus, then isolation and lies is how we are deformed into the image of the devil. And let me just say this. We, we, we've been talking a lot about parenting lately and thinking about parenting. 
But this is the reality of parenting as well. Spirit and truth. A, a, a parent that is present who speaks truth over their child and speaks life into them is actually the most transformative thing that a child can experience. But when a child grows up and they're instead experiencing isolation and lies, their father isn't there, their, their mother isn't there, or, and then all of a sudden what they believe are lies about themselves. They're not loved. They're not worth anything. They'll never amount to anything. Then all of a sudden that deforms them into the image of the devil. And in the same way, when Satan comes against Eve, what does he do? He draws her away from community. He brings her into isolation so he can tell her a lie. And I bet you a dollar that when most of y'all experience your greatest temptations it's going to be in one of two places it's going to be either when you are isolated or you are surrounded by bad spirits in other people somebody amen me on that right when you're with like like here's the thing nobody comes into the church house or goes to you don't go to a small group where people are discussing the bible and everybody gets done and y'all pray at the end you say you know what guys i've been thinking i think we should rob a bank Nobody does that, do they? Because they are in community. Spirit is there. Truth is there. And they are hardwired to think toward God. And even when things in their mind come up, they're thinking, I shouldn't be thinking that. They put it aside. But all of a sudden, when they go home and Satan gets them isolated, a thought comes into their mind. And he says, you know what? Probably wouldn't hurt you to maybe look at that for a minute. Probably wouldn't hurt you to maybe do that. Contact that person. And all of a sudden in isolation, he plants a lie. And this is why it's so important that you are involved in community and you are aware that when you are isolated, you take notice of the lies that are coming into your heart, that are coming into your mind. What is Satan telling? I tell people all the time, and I get probably weekly several, a handful of people that will message me and say, man, right now I, I, I tell especially our leadership, people on our worship team, just whatever. Like if lies are coming to your mind, you ain't got to tell me, but you need to tell somebody this is what I'm thinking. And you need to tell that to somebody who is grounded in the truth of God's word. Because they can help you replace those lies with the truth of what God says about you. Because there are people who come to me and say, man, I just feel like trash right now. I don't feel like I'm worth anything. And it's the farthest thing from the truth. I'm talking about people who are dominating for the kingdom of God right now. And lies still come into their mind. But when Satan gets them isolated, he moves them away and all of these things begin to happen. We need to be held accountable. We need that community. We need the spirit and the truth of God's word in our hearts so that we're transformed into the image of Jesus rather than being deformed into the image of the devil. So how do we work against lies, isolation and the strategies, the enemy strategies against us? With the truth of God. Now, here's the thing. Somebody said, well, you know, was Adam and Eve, were they real people? I want you to understand that that, that story is so theologically rich that it's amazing. Adam means human. Eve means life. It is, it is the basis for all of human life, but I believe personally that Adam and Eve, they were legitimate human beings. Okay, And the reason I believe that is because when Jesus shows up, He is called the last Adam. He reverses what Adam failed to do, he accomplishes what Adam failed to do, yet he stands in Adam's place on the cross receiving the punishment. 
This is why when Jesus shows up on the scene in Luke chapter 4, when He goes out, it says that by the Spirit He was led into the wilderness when He returned from the Jordan and being tempted for 40 days by the devil, right? He was in, in the wilderness tempted 40 days by the devil the same way that Adam and Eve were tempted. And in those days He ate nothing. So He's fasting. And afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. And notice this, the devil comes to him the same way that he came to Eve in the garden. He's the last Adam. And he said, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him saying, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. You need to take that to heart this morning. That you do not live by bread alone. You don't live by what? Who, who ate a lot this week? I ate so much on Thanksgiving, Andreas told everybody that I never stood up more than 10 minutes that day. I, I ate so much, I just went over in a chair and laid like this. I was in a Thanksgiving coma, just blessing the Lord. I get that. Thank God for good food and that we get to eat, amen? But we don't live by food and bread alone. Your spirit will die without the nourishment of God's Word. But when Satan comes to Jesus, what does he say in that first, that first verse there where, where, he, where he speaks to him? He says, if you are the Son of God. He makes him question his identity. And what you need to know is that, guess what? Just the chapter earlier, he was baptized in the River Jordan. And when he comes up out of the water, the heavens are parted. The Spirit descends upon him like a dove. And a voice from heaven says, this is my Son, whom I love and in whom I am well pleased. And now when he gives him the temptation, he questions, hey, if you really are the Son of God, what does he leave off? He leaves off if you are the Son whom he loves. Because the one thing that Satan knows is that if he's going to get you to accept his temptations and his lies, he needs you to believe that God is not close and God definitely does not love you. God doesn't care for you. He doesn't care about you. This is why in, in 1 John 2, 15, it says, Do not love the world, neither the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, right? It says, put that verse up there for me if you would. Do not love the world, neither the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, I want you to pay attention to this because what it doesn't say is, if you love the world, you don't love God. What it says is, if you love the world, you have not yet received the love of the Father for you. You have not received the most essential truth of what it means to be a human being that you are loved by God more than you could ever imagine. When you know, let me tell you something, the thing that broke the sin off my life, you could argue it was a lot of different things. I went through some spiritual disciplines. There was prayer and fasting. The power of the Holy Spirit showed up in my life. Things happened. But in that moment where it really broke, what I experienced was God the Father's love for me as an individual person whom He created. And when that happened... I lost my desire for many of the things that I was choosing over God. But it says, for all that is in the world, notice this, he says, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of the life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. He says, all that is in the world, what? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. When Eve was tempted, what did she say? It's good for food, lust of the flesh. It's pleasing to the eyes, lust of the eyes. And it has the ability to make one wise, the pride of life. And in the same way, when Satan tempts Jesus, he comes to him first with what? The lust of the flesh. Hey, I know you're hungry. You ain't ate nothing in 40 days, boy. If you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread right here and eat something. I mean, it's th they're down there celebrating Thanksgiving. This is why when you start to fast, everybody invites you to dinner. 
I tell you, you, you call yourself a three-day fast, the devil will go to every one of your friends and say, hey, 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 hey. matter of fact, this is God. Tell him I'm going to buy his meal. Amen. <laughs> I, I'm serious, y'all. I'm serious. There comes a time where as Christians we have to intentionally practice self-denial. Amen. So the second temptation, he, he gets him, he, he responds with the Word of God, it is written. The second temptation, it says he takes him to a high mountain and he shows him all of the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. He sees every kingdom in the world in a moment of time. And Satan says, look, Jesus, all of these kingdoms, they're mine. They've been handed over to me and I have authority and I can give you authority over all these kingdoms. You can bypass the cross if you'll just bow down and worship me. And Jesus doesn't even have a problem with that. He doesn't deny that. But he, what he says, is you know what it is written he quotes Deuteronomy the second time I believe Deuteronomy is his favorite book he quotes Deuteronomy a second time he, he says it is written you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve so Satan says I can't get him on the lust of the eyes either let's move to the pride of life and so he moves to the pride of life and it says he brought him to Jerusalem set him on the temple on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. Now notice Satan here because here's where he gets tricky. He says, you know what? Jesus is quoting scripture. I'll quote a little scripture back at him. And he says, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you. This is Psalm 91. Let me tell you something. The devil's got more scripture memorized than most of y'all got. He said, it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you. And in their hands, they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. I quote that scripture all the time in prayer. And Jesus answered and said to him, bro, that is taken out of context. And I'm going to go back to Deuteronomy, my favorite book. And it has been said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God or put your God to the test. God will protect us, but we are not to put him to the test. That's what he says. And so now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Now see, Jesus in this point reverses everything that Adam did, failed to do because he was supposed to keep the garden. So Jesus was tempted at all points like you and I are, yet without sin. This is when Satan said, uh-oh, we got something on our hands we don't know what to deal with. And that's why when Jesus showed up in the synagogues, all the demons cried out and said, we know who you are. You're the Holy One. You are the Son of God. Because it was the first human being in human history to resist all of the temptations of the devil. And he resisted them. And here's what I need you to understand. How does Jesus fight the devil? First of all, he is a calm, non-anxious presence. He's not just going around yelling at the devil. He's not pulling out swords. He's not just flagrantly yelling in tongues or anything like that. He is literally just sitting there having a conversation with the devil and he is combating the lies of the devil with the spoken word of God. Christians underestimate the powerful reality of what will happen in their lives if they memorize Scripture and put it in their heart. I told Forrest this morning, and I do this, on my phone there's always Bible verses on the back of it. And the reason they're there is because I'm currently memorizing those verses. This week I memorized Psalm 100. The entire Psalm is just five verses. But see, I like to have it there. You know why I like to have it there? Because I told them this morning, I said, if I was to go out into the wilderness and the devil show up and I ain't got my Bible with me and he starts tempting me, I've got the Word of God in my heart. I don't got to pull my Bible out in that moment when I'm isolated and alone. I ain't got to go look into the Scriptures. The Word is in my heart. 
See, Jesus said, I, your word, the psalmist said, I have hidden in my heart, O God, that I might not sin against you. You need a practice of not just reading the Bible, but studying the Bible and getting the word of God hidden in your heart to use because it is the sword of the Spirit. And I know most of you are going to say, well, I don't know about doing all that. Clay. You can learn one, you can memorize one verse a week. You can do it. But we have to understand that the way that we're going to battle the enemy is through the truth of God's word. Notice Jesus is in the wilderness and he's practicing spiritual disciplines. He's fasting, he's praying, and he is saturated in the word of God. Praying and fasting and saturated in the word of God. Spiritual disciplines are spiritual warfare. Spiritual disciplines are spiritual warfare. One guy said, Steve Porter said, the disciplines are embodied practices in a physical world whereby we present ourselves to the immaterial reality of the spirit and word of Christ. He's saying, you know what? You can't see God. God's a spirit. But when I pray, when I fast, when I study and meditate on scripture, when I worship corporately, when I call upon God's name, I'm connecting myself, my physical body and my physical reality to a spirit who is God himself. And so, in other words, the way you're going to fight the enemy is through the truth of God's word and you're going to learn how to pray and you're going to learn how to fast and you're not going to isolate, but you're going to go into moments of solitude where you practice these spiritual disciplines before the Lord and you line your mind up because Romans 12 too, right? It says, do not be conformed by this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We've got to do the work of renewing our mind. Now I'm going to finish up right here. I, I'm, I'm, I'm probably losing y'all, so I'm going to bring you right back in right here. We're going to finish up. Amen. I'm telling you, this is so essential to the Christian life that we come to this place where we understand that it's by the spiritual disciplines that we're transformed. And entertainment's a huge thing in our society, isn't it? You've got to ask yourself, what, what is it that I give my time to? What is it that I give my devotion to? I read something this week where it says the average American is in front of a TV for four to five hours a day. The average American or the average millennial is on their phone five and a half hours a day. That same report said that people actually only work now about two hours a day. I said, that can't be true. I, work, I at least work three, you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> the point behind that is, is if you're spending that, you have to evaluate your time. Because here's the thing, you are not going to flip a switch and get set free from depression. You're not going to flip a switch and get set free from anxiety. You're not going to flip a switch and break your addiction. You're not going, you're not going to flip a switch and just be changed. You have got to learn that Jesus has designed this life in such a way that even He Himself went into a place of prayer and in solitude and fasting and studying of the Word because He was practicing the spiritual disciplines because He knew that was what was going to transform Him. And so there's really four things that we're transformed by, and I'm going to finish right here. Put those four things up for me. Number one is just truth. And here's the thing. I can't flip a switch, but what I can do, I can come to church on Sunday morning and listen to the Word of God. Matter of fact, I can take it to a whole other level and take notes and write down the verses and the thoughts that really stuck with me that I need to take home and meditate on throughout the week because it's, it's not going to help you that much if you just listen and you don't remember one thing from this throughout the week. You've got to get this ingrained in you. So truth and teaching. I can't flip a switch, but guess what? I can go back and listen to, to a sermon on podcasts. I can open up the Word and I can study and I can take notes. I can memorize the Scripture. Number two, spiritual disciplines. Right? I can't flip a switch. 
I ain't going to change instantly, but what I can do is get up early in the morning and start praying before anybody else gets up, before my baby gets up, so that she ain't crying and I ain't got to take care of her, and then my day just goes into utter chaos. Amen. Spiritual disciplines. And spiritual disciplines, you think, well, that's just stuff you do at church. No, Netflix is a spiritual discipline. Your relationship with your boyfriend is a spiritual discipline. All of these things fit into our spiritual disciplines. Three is community. That means that I need to be with the people of God talking about the truths of God's words, not allowing myself to get into isolation. So many people say, hey, won't you hold me accountable? And I'm thinking, won't you come to church? That's how we're held accountable. I'm held accountable essentially just because I'm rooted in relationships with many of you all. I could think, you know what, I'd sure like to rob a bank today, but I'm hanging out with Justin and he ain't going to let me. Amen. Fourthly, Holy Spirit, I develop a relationship with God where I am believing not in my own will. Let me tell you something. You cannot change yourself. If you think Christianity is about you being a better you, you're wrong. Christianity is about the Holy Spirit making you completely new. He transforms you supernaturally into the image of Christ, but you've got to give yourself two spiritual disciplines and you've got to take down these lies. And here's what I want to give you as a practice. You need to ask yourself, one, what lies have I believed about who God is? What lies do I believe right now about who God is? Has something happened in your life where you don't believe God is as good as He really is? And I would, here's what I would do if I were you. I would take some time. I would sit down with my Bible and I would ask myself these questions and I would write down the lies that I believe about who God is and I would replace it with the truth of God's Word. Secondly, what lies do I believe about who I am? Do I believe I'm unworthy? Do I believe I'm unloved? Am I rejected? What, I mean, what, what kind of lies do you believe about who you are? You need to find what God says about you in His Word and replace those lies with truth. And then lastly, what lies do I believe about what the good life is? Have you bought into some kind of secular idea that the good life is you just having sex with anybody you want to, doing whatever you want to do when you want to do it, getting as rich as you can possibly get, chasing the American dream? Maybe one day if you grow up, you'll be some kind of superstar. Is it about fame? Is it about popularity? Is it about Instagram likes? Is it about influence? No, our lives, the good life is about glorifying Jesus Christ and following Him. Amen. So you got to ask yourself, what is the truth that I can put in place of these lies? Because what I believe, whether it be lies or whether it be truth, is going to determine my destiny. I would encourage you to get in the Scripture this week. Find a verse, find two verses that are speaking to you right now in this moment of your life and memorize those things and hide them in your heart. It will change who you are. We are fighting a battle between lies and truth. And you've got to understand that you've got to make a commitment to the truth of God's Word. Amen? I want you to bow your heads just for a moment. Because see, here's the good news about all of this. Is that Jesus was the truth sayer. He's the one who has all truth. And He said that when He ascended to heaven, He was going to send the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, who would guide you into all truth and teach you all things. But the first place that you're at, for many of you, is just yielding. Yielding to Jesus, I just want you to pray right where you're at. Father, we come to you this morning and we yield to you, Jesus.